Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I will be joined by Lauren Hurl for the Session Shakedown segment, all about Crossover Week. Lauren chats with Senator Christopher Bray for our deep dive conversation about the Housing Bill, Affordable Heat Act, and more. And then later on, I speak with Attorney General Charity Clark about the role of Attorney General, its part in climate action, current legislation that she is following and even weighing in on, and a bit more about why the environment is such a passion of hers. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media too. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback? Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Our legislative scorecard now has scores for votes this session, thanks to the recent vote on the Affordable Heat Act a couple of weeks ago in the Senate. How are your elected officials voting? What are their current and lifetime scores? You can find out by visiting our website. Now I'm joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for our session shakedown segment where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. We are in the middle of crossover. Last Friday was the cutoff for bills to be moved out of their policy committees in their respective chambers. And this Friday is the cutoff for the bills to make it out of their respective money committees. From there, they will swap chambers and be worked on and voted on during the second half of the session. So Lauren, let's talk about what has made it through. Let's start with some great news about the PFAS legislation. Yeah, so legislation was brought up last week, worked on really hard, a scramble to get it through a crossover and keep it on track for passage this year. And this bill would ban PFAS toxic chemicals um, along with some other really nasty chemicals from personal care products. So things like shampoo, lotion, um, you know, think of the things that we bathe in and, you know, apply to our body. Plus, Um, bans PFAS from textiles, so clothing, rugs, things like that, um, and also from artificial turf fields. So the big, you know, plastic fields that are uh, installed at some schools. So it was a really, uh, in some ways, a nation-leading bill, um, in a lot of ways, really builds on work that's happening in other states, especially states like California and Washington. Amazing. And that passed out of the committee unanimously, correct? Yes. So Senate Health and Welfare passed it out 5-0, and that should head to the Senate floor this week. Awesome. And as we know, and have previously reported, S-5, which is the Affordable Heat Act, has passed through the full Senate vote and is already over to the House Committee on Environment and Energy. That committee was able to pass a few things out uh, before crossover, correct? Yes, there were two VCV priority bills uh, that the committee moved. One was the 30 by 30 bill. So again, the legislation that would set 
targets of conserving 30% of Vermont's land by 2030 and uh, would create an inventory, an analysis and a plan of, you know, where are we now and how do we get to that 30% goal? So that uh, that move forward as well. And we're anticipating a, a House floor vote on that bill this week. And one other priority was uh, modernizing the bottle bill. And that legislation passed through the uh, a, a few committees before making its way to the House floor. And that is going to really update the bottle bill to address all of the types of beverages that are on the market now. So, you know, if you if you pay attention, you know, some beverages are part of the bottle bill where you can redeem them and some are not. So this would in large part just modernize it to reflect that and also make some updates so that the system will work better. So there's better opportunities for redemption and and things to make it easier for consumers and for the people that are processing all that waste. Awesome. And then the ranked choice voting moved on in the Senate, uh, Senate committee, also unanimous, uh, but it looks a little different. Yeah, they made some changes to the bill. So uh, they, you know, kept the crux of trying to move forward with ranked choice voting. Um, Some of the changes were looking out to a later date for a presidential primary. So 2028 for presidential primaries where they'd put ranked choice voting in place, um, but also authorizing local governments to implement ranked choice voting without having to go through the legislative process. So making it easier for local governments to move forward with it in the meantime, and also sets up a study commission to look at uh, implementing ranked choice voting for other federal elections. So like when we're electing U.S. senators and Congress people, for example. Yeah, very exciting stuff. Yeah. Um, you you speak with Senator Bray uh, for our next segment, and you touch upon housing and several other things. But And I'll let that conversation provide the insight there. But let's shift now to what hasn't been taken up. Uh, what will sadly be backburnered for now? And what does it mean for something if it's not taken up before crossover? So in the first year of a biennium, so in Vermont, we have a two-year biennium. So uh, people are elected. They've got two years to do their work. So the good news is that in the first year, like we are in now, you can make progress on a bill. And when you get into next year, it picks up where it left off. So if you get a bill, for example, just through the House, that means the Senate takes it up the next year and you move on from there. So there's still opportunity to move, you know, move forward other bills that have not yet made it through that crossover deadline. Um, But if you didn't make a crossover, it means that you, without getting a special rule passed, which is extremely unusual, um, you almost certainly will not pass that bill all the way to the governor's desk this year. So that's that's the crux of it. And there's a couple things that didn't make it through um, the crossover deadline um, that we that were on our priority list. For example, um, we want to move forward better protections for. Um, areas along rivers, streams, um, and better protect wetlands. And so hoping that that can get brought up and those conversations moved forward uh, this year, even if they're not going to be enacted. Um, And we also were hoping to see uh, action on updating our renewable energy standard. And so again, I'm anticipating a conversation will begin on that legislation, um, but that did not meet the crossover deadline either. All right. So this week and next, we'll be seeing a lot of bills go to floor votes. Um, You've already alluded to some that you believe will come 
across the floor to, uh, this week. But what, um, just to recap, what do you expect there to be floor votes on this week? So as of right now, anticipating floor votes on the bill to ban PFAS and other toxic chemicals uh, from certain products, I would, I'm anticipating a floor vote. Uh, so that would be in the Senate. Um, also hoping to see that ranked choice bill um, on the Senate floor, although we'll have to see how quickly that moves through the money committees this week. Um, we are anticipating a vote on the housing bill uh, this week as well on the Senate floor. So that kind of covers, I think, the big ones of the Senate. Um, and then on the House side, we're looking at um, hopefully seeing floor action this week on the 30 by 30 bill as well as the bottle bill. That's very exciting. Lots going All on. All right. <laughs> it's going to be a busy week. Um, Let's move now to your conversation with Senator Christopher Bray, where you go a bit deeper on the Energy Efficiency Modernization Act, the housing bill S-100, and uh, the Affordable Heat Act's journey and future in the House. All right. Well, I am delighted to be joined today by Senator Christopher Bray of Addison County, who is the many years now chair of the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee. And being here today on crossover day, so all bills that are have a shot at being enacted this year need to have passed their policy committees by today. So being one of our core committees, really excited to have you here with us today, Senator Bray. Great to be back with you, Lauren. So yeah, crossover day is a busy day, and today it was a good day for us, and the last couple of weeks have been good weeks for us. So on the, on the energy front, actually just today, uh, we passed the Energy Efficiency Modernization Act. It's a three-year pilot that we uh, have seen some good results in, and so we're continuing that. And what does it do? It allows for energy efficiency utilities to do uh, innovative work in the area of reducing emissions from transportation and heating. And the the reason it's really important that we have this pilot is that, uh, sadly enough, we don't yet have comprehensive programs to address thermal energy loads and uh, transportation energy loads and the emissions that go with them. So while we're working on such bills, and that's queuing up S5, but Uh, We wanted to make sure that we would uh, run a pilot that would help us learn about what are smart, cost-effective ways to take on that work Mm -hmm. so that we would hit the ground running when these bigger bills become live. That's great. So that bill moved through, hit the crossover deadline, so we'll be... um you know, on its way for this year, let's hope. Can you tell us about some of the other big priorities that your committee has passed and that are the things that we're going to be keeping an eye on for the second half of the legislative session? Sure. Um, the uh, Sticking with energy, we passed S5, the Affordable Heat Act, uh, roughly three, four weeks ago now, and it passed the Senate with uh, a strong vote. It's over to the House. I'll be going over to introduce it there next week. So I'm glad to see they're already taking it up and we'll get uh, get to work on it. And uh, probably most people have heard about it, but basically what the Affordable Heat Act is now structured to create a program that uses revenues generated by uh, the sale of uh, heating oil and fossil fuels to help support the transition to clean heating technologies such as cold climate heat pumps or advanced wood heat. 
uh, and it also supports transitional fuels, biofuels, in which over time an ever larger percentage of those fuels must be uh, grown from plants as opposed to fossil fuels pulled out of the ground. Um, there's a big change that happened in that bill just before it left the Senate. And so for anyone who's watching, uh, there's two sides to what has worried some people lately. Uh, one was that uh, we were going to get this plan developed by these PUC and delivered in January of 2025. And then had the legislature taken no actions whatsoever, it would have automatically advanced in the summer of 2025 uh, through rulemaking. Uh, some people felt like, wait, you should have to have a complete hard stop, look at the program and its costs, uh, and then take an affirmative action, namely to introduce a bill and have it voted by House, Senate, and uh, then passed on to the governor before proceeding. Um, th that seemed like a very reasonable request, you know, like we have uh, ample measures in the bill to help us identify the costs. That's always been there. But people wanted the comfort of having a hard stop so that we would look at those costs before proceeding. So we made that change. And so now I'd say if someone is opposed to advancing the Affordable Heat Act, uh, I would say from a legislative point of view, um, I don't know how anyone can be upholding their oath of office that says we uh, have a statutory requirement to make a best faith effort to reduce emissions. And there is no other program running right now or proposed to reduce them. Um, and then secondly, the preliminary estimates show that this program may well save Vermonters roughly $5 billion with a B between now and or between enactment and 2050. So between meeting the legal requirements as lawmakers and uh, to address climate change, which is a compelling um, issue for us to uh, face up to and take on uh, directly and and also to offer our um, constituents at home an opportunity to get out of the fossil fuel roller coaster ride with prices and move to something more price stable and less polluting and then saving five billion dollars along the way so there are a lot of good reasons to advance it Thanks for that overview and update on the latest changes to that bill. And it's exciting to hear that the House is going to be taking it up as soon as next week. So we'll keep people sure. posted on that. Um, and lastly, could you tell us about the housing bill you all have been working on, S-100? Sure. So S-100 came out of the Economic Development Committee, and it is uh, focused on changes in um it's a broad bill with many sections, but I think what's drawn the most attention is changes to land use and planning law, uh, both at the municipal level and at the state level, which is implemented largely through Act 250. Um, what uh, we ended up doing was uh, listening carefully to what the Economic Development Committee wanted to do, uh, and then we also considered the, the absolutely crucial role that Act 250 has played over the last 53 years in guiding land use and development in the state of Vermont. I'd say it's not an overstatement in any way to say that part of the reason Vermont is still the green, beautiful place it is without sprawl and with uh, emphasis on smart growth and development in defined towns and village centers, uh, cities, is because of Act 250. 
So we look for opportunities to support more housing in uh, designated areas, basically the areas that we've already got good planning and development rules, uh, infrastructure, and say, let's make those areas more densely settled, um, build the new housing there, and take pressure off of expanding, sprawling into the green spaces around towns and um, cities. Great. All right. So I'm sure that will continue to be a very lively conversation as that bill moves through the process, uh, but encouraging to hear so much attention on housing and doing it in smart growth ways right. that will both protect our environment and allow housing in sure. locations where we want it. Yeah. And, and then while we had the bill, uh, you know, there's two things just on housing itself. Uh, Several years ago, there is a category of housing called priority housing projects that have to be at least 20% affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And three years ago, I think it was, we modified um, the law so that that housing has to be built, quote unquote, to the stretch code, the stretch energy code, which is more um, uh, environmentally friendly and energy efficient. Uh, so that continues. And then we also added, uh, while we had the housing bill, a uh, working group to help us figure out how to enforce our residential uh, building energy codes as well as the commercial building energy codes. Because we know that it's cost effective to build right from the beginning. It's much more expensive to come back in later and retrofit. So if we really want a truly affordable housing, let's make it um, well constructed and energy efficient from the outset. Um, we've had a hang up in the state of Vermont where we have laws but no enforcement mechanism. So uh, this working group is tasked with coming back with a recommendation by the end of the year to help us figure out how to enforce. And I think that will deliver very long-term benefits to every Vermonter. No one wants to build a house below code. Uh, the question is, do you even know if your house is being built or your apartment or whatever uh, to code? So we uh, enforcement in this case is really a very positive consumer-friendly thing. It's also friendly and supported by people in the building trades who already build code, and uh, they're in an they're on an uneven playing field if they have to compete against builders who do not build the code, save money, and uh, offer quote unquote cheap housing that's actually much more expensive to own and run in the long run. Gotcha, interesting update. Well, I think that that gives us a great overview. Okay. Really appreciate having your time on this really busy crossover day and all the work that's been done by your committee to advance these important bills. And I'm sure we'll be back in touch with you soon as the House bills come over your way and sure, <laughs> you sure. get to work on those. Um, absolutely. I'd say, can I say one last thing of to people course. who may be listening? Uh, the Affordable Heat Act is... I think a lot of people know came through the Senate and there was a lot of controversy. I'd say there was quite a bit of misinformation circulated. I have the concern that uh, when the bills are on the House side, that that same sort of uh, campaign uh, to defeat the bill may be mounted again. So uh, as it progresses, I hope that um, people on listening to the podcast will reach out to their legislators and uh, help uh help them stand firm and move this bill forward. Thanks for that addition. Yeah, we've really, it's almost unprecedented the amount of money that's being spent and a lot of misinformation and kind of 
fear mongering out there on the Affordable Heat Act. So really important message and really important that Vermonters are taking the time to weigh in with their legislators on it. So appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that, you know, that campaign, it's I've been in the legislature 15 years and uh, this was a approximately thirty seven thousand dollar campaign, including television ads. and I've never seen that kind of effort uh, mounted to defeat a bill before. And I think uh, it was misguided. And I hope that when people really learn what the bill does, that they'll see uh, all the upsides in it, as well as the safety built into having a full stop and a full vote once we see the details. Absolutely. And we'll keep people posted as that conversation gets underway in the House. Thank you so much again, Senator Bray, and we'll be back with you, I'm sure, soon. Take care. Looking forward to it. Bye. Attorney General Charity Clark is our state's 28th Attorney General and the first woman to ever be elected to the position, having been elected last November. But she is no stranger to the office, having served as Assistant Attorney General to former Attorney General Bill Sorrell and as Chief of Staff to her predecessor, Attorney General T.J. Donovan, for a combined eight years. And as a first for this podcast, she is our first statewide elected official to be a guest on the show. So welcome, Charity Clark. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, and also thank you for being a listener. I was very tickled when I learned that. Of course. That's what I like to do when I'm riding my exercise bike. (laughs) I love it. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm not going to go too far into your biography today because from past conversations that I've had with you, I've picked up on some really fascinating moments that I think set up really good framing to kind of begin our conversation. You grew up in Southern Vermont, and you've mentioned before that your parents were really aware of our society's impact on the environment and our role and responsibility to take action on it. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about your upbringing. Yes, I I grew up in Southern Vermont. Um, My dad was an Eagle Scout, and we were very outdoorsy and lived in a passive solar house with a heat pump. Um, a geothermal heat pump. And um, and my mom actually lives in a, like currently a full on off the grid solar powered house. And when I was in seventh grade, I remembered um, we had a science project and I like literally built a little solar house. So and I was into recycling. I would write letters to the president complaining about, you know, uh, the ozone layer problem and all of it. So I, as a child growing up was very outdoorsy and also very aware and active um, in the space of uh, environmental concerns. So definitely, um, I'm I'm a very fitting guest for this podcast. (laughs) I love it. I, um, as a fellow Vermont kid, I love that you have a a really impactful memory surrounding Green Up Day. And for listeners out there that maybe are not intimately familiar with Vermont, Green Up Day, it's the first Saturday in May, and Vermonters are encouraged to pick up green bags from their town coordinators and walk alongside roadways, picking up trash and litter to literally green up as we enter springtime. Uh, I, too, grew up loving that day, and I considered it like a holiday on the level of Halloween or, you know, the 4th of July. Um, But you had a pretty impactful experience once, um, including a very special guest experience. Uh, What was that experience like for you, and how did it stay with you? Well, I think I was I was nine, um, maybe ten, 
And um, of course, by that point, I had entered the Green Up Day poster contest many times, um, as you do. And uh, Governor Madeline Cunin came to my town. And it was really the first time that I had awareness that we had a woman governor. And I think at that point, there were only two women governors in the whole country. And um, she arrived in a convertible, which my sister got to ride in. I did not. And um, it was she was like so super cool. And it really made an impression on me because um, it was really the, the the venue, if you will, was Green Up Day. But really getting to meet the governor and realizing she was a woman and how special that was. Um, she always she became kind of my hero. And then throughout my life, I, you know, I read her autobiography when I was in college and it oriented me to state politics. I was majoring. One of my majors was political science. The other was English. And I really started focusing on state politics. Like I took all the state politics political systems classes that they offered at UVM. Um, and then when I graduated and I got an internship working in the governor's office and some of the same people were like there or in the state orbit. And so to me, they were like famous <laughs> because I'd read about them in her book. Um, and yeah, it, it really did start a green up day. That's so, that's so incredible. And um, I'm hoping that I'm going to put it on record right now. I'm hoping that you'll be a guest for my town's Green Up Day this spring um, so that I have to hold you to it. Um, yes. But that, that would be you. fantastic. <laughs> so you mentioned um, going to UVM and studying political science, um, and you were a policy analyst for Governor Dean. Yep. Um, and then you entered law school. Was, was law like an underlying passion for you when you were younger, or what inspired that career choice? Well, I, you know, lived in a small town in rural Vermont, and I did not know any women lawyers except on TV. And that was Claire Huxtable, who was the most like amazing, glamorous, in charge character. And then in high school, um, I became aware of other women lawyers, and they had, uh, you know, a, a profile in the national media, which was Anita Hill. And also Hillary Clinton around that time. So I became aware of, of women lawyers. And I think that there is something to that concept um, that when you see your, when you can see yourself, then you can imagine what you might do in that career. And I think I thought like, well, maybe someday I'll, you know, be a lawyer. I was really into government. I was very dorky and really into government. And um, I did an internship at Senator Leahy's office and then at, with Governor Dean's office. And while I was working at Governor Dean's office, I really could observe all of these incredible people, um, especially women, honestly, who I looked up to who were lawyers. And I could see that they were given a little more respect than maybe they would have if they hadn't been lawyers, which is a very upsetting thing to observe. But, you know, I was trying to make my way in the world and I'm thinking, what's going to give me the most clout and the most um, kind of edge up? And I could see all these like women I admired who were lawyers and um, ultimately decided to go to law school myself. So would you say that your interest in government, like, it's very interesting to hear that. Did that stem from anything specifically or, or, or like your time at UVM taking those classes um, or, and, and sort of, and you're an elected official, you were, I mean, obviously you're the AG, but you're also a justice of the peace. And um, so is that, is that something that's just always been of interest to you from a young age or yes. something that developed in college? I think that when you live in a small town, you can see what an incredible impact one person can make, whether it be the elementary school soccer coach or the person who is on the select board 
or the person who organizes like the VFW talent show, which I loved when I was a kid. And those people are just members of the community, but they play such an important role. And I think growing up in a small town, the idea of like government was so plain to see because it was every everywhere you looked, there, those were your neighbors and your community members who were making the whole town work properly. And I, I'm sure that's where the seeds were planted and going to town meeting. I mean, not to be like completely dorky and, and like reaching for my pancakes with maple syrup on them. But I mean, we went to town meeting because that we didn't have childcare. So, you know, the kids would go and we would all like hang out in the in the gym's, you know, lobby area and mess around and do our homework. And it just was kind of a part being a, the government was like a general part of our kind of mindset, I guess. And so when I got to to UVM, I was an undecided major at first, like I was kind of like exploring, but it seemed so obvious what I was going to be majoring in English and political science. Um, and I, I, in my, when I was in private practice, I missed being a, a state employee. And especially when I was in private practice in New York city at this giant law firm, I remember thinking, you know what the best job was <laughs> working for the state where everything you did all day long, you're just helping people or helping the state you love so much. And it just, it's like such a good feeling. And I, I always, um, loved it. And I even in New York, I even had like a reoccurring dream where I was like in Montpelier walking down the street, like on my way to work happy. Um, so I, I think I was definitely destined to come back to state service and just feel honestly so privileged now to be the attorney general. I'm really glad I asked that because, you know, as a small town kid from Vermont, like town meeting is, is, you know, up there with Green Up Day, right? As a, as sort of a holiday. Um, and I can relate on so many levels of of seeing, you know, of knowing my state rep, which is now Senator Westman, um, oh. you know, and he was, I went to Johnson State and, you know, Senator Doyle was a professor of yep. mine and he obviously had access to, everyone in Montpelier. And so he would have guests in his classroom every single, every single week. It was someone new and including attorney general Sorrell, I remember um, visiting, but it's, it's fascinating how, um, how it, you can be shaped by government here on, cause it's so intimate and yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's incredible. I, I would say, I feel having grown up in that, like you did, I have a sense of responsibility to always be looking for those kids who are going to be us someday. You know, they're going to be the ones on the podcast. And I, we actually have going on right now in our office, um, the Earth Day essay challenge for fifth and sixth graders. Um, and we review these essays. We like invite kids to write essays about Earth Day or the environment. And then we review them and every single kid gets feedback from a lawyer in my office. And I was like, I like sign me up. So I'm going to be one of the lawyers like reviewing these. And thinking like, oh, I would have been so excited if as a kid I'd written an essay and the actual attorney general gave me feedback like, good points. I love to hear it. So I can't wait. I'm really excited for that. I love it. And thanks for fostering the next generation. That's yep. that's yeah, that's what it's all about, really, right? Yeah. I think at first glance, the average person wouldn't really think that the AG's office has much impact on the environment or policies that our organization cares so deeply about. But in actuality, there's some major overlap. Uh, we proudly endorsed you and you ran on a platform that included protection of our environment. Could you tell listeners a bit more about your role more generally, and then also share with us some of the ways that your office deals with environmental topics specifically? Sure. 
Um, so a lot of the work that we do in the AG's office in the environmental unit um, come from referrals from the Agency of Natural Resources. And some of these cases are, they have lawyers too. Some of these cases are just are complicated or they're going to take a long time or they just need more resources. And so we'll come in and it really runs the gamut. Um, if someone has a toxic waste site in their backyard and they're not supposed to, you know, we will um, use the state's statutes to enforce um, environmental the environmental statutes to try to get that person to stop doing it and pay penalties and whatnot. Um, we work the same space in many respects, you know, like with farms or um, logging. And then we also have the ability to bring our own lawsuits. And one sort of well-known lawsuit at this point that we've done is uh, we sued the fossil fuel company on a greenwashing theory using the Consumer Protection Act. And uh, one thing that I did when I arrived at the office is I united the environmental unit and the consumer unit into one division, which is called the Environmental and Public Protection Division. Um, there's a couple of other units in there as well. But to me, there's so much overlap between consumer and environmental. And I want to make sure that we're taking all the opportunities we have to protect Vermonters and also to move the needle on some of the issue areas that you know seem so obvious to me. So much of our um, you know, money is spent on things, on services. We are consumers in so many capacities. And to the extent that we can be driving better environmental policies using our consumer choices or even consumer awareness, which we do a lot of with our consumer assistance program, to me, that was very compelling. And I think there's a lot of opportunities there I want to make sure we were taking. Amazing. And there's some... There's currently some legislation in the Senate Committee on Health and Welfare um, that you were just testifying on yes. um, yesterday, yep. I think, right? Um, and those are surrounding PFAS and forever chemicals that are in consumer goods, such as cosmetics and menstrual products and other personal care products. Um, so why is that important to you? Why, why, were you, why were you there testifying? Well, like I said, one of the um, we, we are the consumer experts in Vermont. There's a lot of people who know a lot about environmental law, but we really are the consumer experts. So anytime there's consumer products, we're going to show up to testify to offer our, our expertise and our perspective. This bill in particular um, has an enforcement mechanism that is 100% you know, us. It's the attorney general's office using the Consumer Protection Act to um, enforce the ban on these chemicals in these products. So I wanted to make sure that we weighed in, provided our perspective, made ourselves available to answer any questions. And, you know, some of the questions were along the lines of, we're not the first, or we would be the first in some of these. Most of most of these chemicals we wouldn't, but, you know, is it okay to be on the vanguard? And I always look to Europe with this and say, Europe is way ahead of us. I mean, in some cases, Europe has been massively like decades and decades ahead of us on some of these. And when, especially when it comes to cosmetics, which I'm the first woman elected attorney general. So I always, I'm going to be looking with fresh eyes on issues that I think impact particularly women and cosmetics certainly is one of those areas. But we we ban so few chemicals in the United States and Europe bans over a thousand in cosmetics. And it's just, where's the disconnect here, folks? I mean, it's not, um, 
I don't think we're in the right spot. So I'm really glad the legislature is taking this up and happy to lend our voice to, um, you know, make sure the bill is as good as it can be and say it's a great idea. We should definitely pass it. Yeah, I had heard that some of the conversation was around, you know, there was some hesitancy around um, including any of the chemicals that weren't in California or Washington's legislation um, because we wanted to, you know, follow suit of not be the first. But um, it's, I think it's really nice to hear you say that, you know, we're so far behind, like globally, yeah. that it's okay for us to be the first to get rid of some of these things. So yeah. I really- sometimes we're the first and people follow us and that's good too. I mean, I, in the committee, I joked, we're Vermont, we're small, but mighty. And it's true. We are able to, with our process in, in the Vermont state house, um, everything's on the human scale here. And so we're able to move legislation thoroughly and quickly in a way that a bigger state might not be able to. I mean, every, the stakeholders are all there, you know, no one's excluded. We're just wandering the halls of the state house together. And I think that it makes for really good legislation, but we can also, you know, recognize the problem and then act quickly, which I think is what is happening here, which is great. Absolutely. And I just, um, yeah, I think I, I just want to, again, thank you so much for taking the lead on that and for being a voice. And also, I'm sure we're going to want to have you back as we move forward with these, with this legislation, particularly that is um, so on the consumer level and yet also on the environmental level as well. So um, I'm sure we'll want to have you for our deep dive conversation sometime later on the podcast. But I want to thank you for taking the time to talk um, to me and, and uh, yeah, prioritizing our climate and environment and all the work that you do as AG. It's, and I can't wait to hold you <laughs> to visiting me out in Cambridge. I would absolutely love that. And um, thanks for having me so much and for your leadership and all that you guys do. Um, it's really, it's really great that you take uh, the role that you do in Vermont. So thank you. Yeah. And if you want to do a green update tour, I'm game. Okay. So, love it. Just bop from place to place. <laughs> With my green bag. <laughs> exactly. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye, Justin. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week. Zero. That is the number of PFAS currently regulated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. However, just last week, the Biden-Harris administration announced it is proposing the first ever national drinking water standard for six per and polyfluoroalkyl substances in the latest action under President Biden's plan to combat PFAS pollution. I want to thank our guests, Attorney General Charity Clark and Senator Christopher Bray, as well as Lauren Hurl for assisting me. Until next week, thanks for listening.